todo el mundo. Welcome to the Rock and Roll Nightmares podcast. I'm your host, Stacey Lane Wilson, author of the Rock and Roll Nightmares book series and director of the documentary The Ventures, Stars on Guitars. This is your destination for all things rock, where the interviewees include musicians, authors, historians, filmmakers, and more. And now, on to the show. My guest today is Holly Knight the writer or co-writer of hits like The Best for Tina Turner, Love is a Battlefield for Pat Benatar, I Am the Warrior for Scandal, and Ragdoll for Aerosmith, to name just a few. She's also in the Songwriters Hall of Fame and a musician who was in the band Spider and played keyboards on the Kiss album Unmasked. She has a new book out, her memoir, I Am the Warrior, My Crazy Life Writing the Hits and Rocking the MTV 80s, which I loved, so I'm thrilled to have her on the show. Let's get her on the line. Well, welcome to the podcast, Holly. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm so excited to have you on because I loved your book, and one of the things that I've noticed in reading a lot of rock autobiographies and and all different kinds of books is that there's so many different ways to approach them. So um, how did you settle on your approach for I Am the Warrior? Well, first I started out doing it as a sort of a traditional um, format. And then I switched it around where I was moving from time to time. Like I started in the future and the end of that story sort of led to back to the beginning. And um, then I had, uh, you know, my publishers look at it as they were, I was about to sign with them and I spoke to an editor who said, um, you know, I really like the stories that were based around the 80s in the MTV, you know, period, which hasn't been really talked about a lot from a behind the scenes point of view. And your stories are so great that why, I think you should focus on this and make this sort of the centerpiece, which is really sort of what happened. So I do talk about my childhood, but I get very quickly into sort of my uh, my version of adulthood, which was about, I guess, you know, I left home at 15. So, but really it, got, it, it launches into when I went back to New York after I'd run away from home 
And it goes very quickly into the beginning of my career, and that moves right into the MTV period. So it really focuses on the 1980s, and it ends at the end of that decade. So if you want to know what happens afterwards, it's all in the, you know, in the afterwards section, but it's not really sort of written in chapters. It's sort of condensed. Um, yeah, well, there's a lot to unpack in the book, and you did touch on how you go into your childhood and your young adulthood a bit and how you left home so young. And one of the things that you said was that uh, outside of music, you didn't have a plan B. So um, I know that worked for you, but in your experience of working with so many creative and successful people, um, do you feel that a lot of people had that mindset? I do. I think that creative people just kind of go for it unless, you know, their parents influenced them so much like get an education so you can fall back on teaching. It was always the term was always fall back, which is sort of their version of a plan B. And, you know, I've thought about it a great deal since then, as I've been successful and everything and thought, well, what would you have done if you hadn't been a songwriter, something completely unrelated? And I probably would have been a doctor because that's everybody in my family, they're doctors. My grandmother, my grandfather were surgeon, my father was a doctor. And I I love healing and things like that. So yeah, probably would have been a, a doctor. But um, no, I just sort of went for it. And, you know, when you're in that dreamy period of, of your 20s, you kind of have that luxury of thinking you're going to live forever and you have at least some time to try and pursue what you hope is what you're meant to be. And um, it actually does take longer. Some people, they don't discover it till they're in their 40s, uh, especially men. Um, but when it comes to musicians, I think you just sort of are born with that spirit. You know, you're creative from the get go. And as I say in the book, music was my first language. It really, really was. I think I was probably singing the first day I was born. And uh, so I was lucky. I, I, I ended up going with the, with the plan A. Uh, well, one of the things that struck me about your memoir right away was how well you described places. Um, there's one passage about the restaurant Le Dome, which um, where you're naming all the celebrities who were there. And you wrote, I had never seen so many familiar faces of people I didn't know in one room, which I thought was really poignant. It really, really brings us into that setting so did you keep diaries or journals or day runners or i just have an amazing memory i have like one of those selective memories i can like forget where i put my keys but i can remember other things in great detail you know and um well here's a few things an autobiography is completely a hundred percent has to be fact everything everything has to be checked in a memoir you're basically saying this is how i remember it so um, I did that to the best of my ability. And if I couldn't remember things, I would call up friends. I had the guitarist from Spider, Keith Lenton, has an, um, an amazing memory and amazing detail for storytelling. And he actually reminded me about several things in the book that I had a bit backwards. But when it came to Ladome, yeah, that was like one of those things, how could you forget? You know, because it was just so surrealistic and it is an odd feeling. I mean, and thank you for uh, zoning in on that sentence because I like that sentence too, because it's so true. I think we all feel that way about celebrities. It's like, I'd never seen so many familiar faces of people I didn't know. You know, we only know them through what we see in the media and TV and, and whatever. And it's weird when you see them in person because now you're thinking to yourself, this is them not in a movie. And so you're kind of studying them, you know, but there were so many of them. And even at the table that I sat down, there was so much going on that it was just, 
you know, it was a potpourri of, of craziness. And, um, you know, if I know people that sort of have been through that era and have been to the dome, they all sort of remember it that way. It was sort of a, I think I said a modern sort of Sodom and Gomorrah place with, with Michelin food. <laughs> Yeah, that's brilliant. I love that. Um, I love how you bring us into your world throughout the entire book, um, professionally, personally, all of it. And you write about your first band, Spider, quite a bit. And um, although it didn't work out in the end, there was so much talent there. And you wrote the song Better Be Good to Me for Yourselves and released it in 19. 81 and um well I didn't realize that so I had to go and check on YouTube and, and listen to that original version um of course Tina Turner's is the one that's better remembered now but can you talk about the process of writing it in the first place and maybe like how it was changed when she took it on and well I was doing my second re record with Spider and the label was run by a producer songwriter named Mike Chapman and his partner Nikki Chen and uh he was known for producing huge, huge acts, as well as being a songwriter. And he'd done all the Blondie records. He did My Sharona by the Knack. He did Hot Child in the City with Nick Gilder. He was just having a lot of number ones. He was sort of, I guess, the Max Martin of that day, you know. And um, and I really wanted to work with him. And it turned out that he was so busy with other commitments when he signed the band that we really never got to use him as a producer, which was my plan all along. And um, at the end of the second record, I went up to him and I said, listen, I think we have some great songs, but you know, and I know that we don't have the breakout single, right? And he said, uh, yeah, you're probably right. And I said, look, will you write it with me? And I hope that if he was he said, yes, he would write it with me, that he would produce it. I could talk him into that. So he was very excited by the idea. He said, yeah, come down to the, the, the office tomorrow. Let's sit down and write a song. And that's what we did. And we wrote it in one day. Um, I had walked in with a title that was more like, uh, be good to me. And he said, well, why don't we change it to better be good to me? It's more assertive. And if we have a woman singing that, that'll be, you know, you've got a female singer. So that would be sort of empowering. Actually, I think that I don't remember what the exact words were, and that doesn't sound like something necessarily that Mike would say, but that was the gist of it. I mean, we're talking about 40 years ago. Darren just started jamming, and we immediately had this chemistry writing together, which throughout my career, there have only been just one or two other people that I've had that connection with. And as a result, he and I have written some great songs together. We wrote Love is a Battlefield and Simply the Best. Um, which is actually called the best. Sometimes people give me a blank look like that couldn't be the possibly the same one as simply the best, right? He's like, no, it is. <laughs> yeah. um, anyway, we were, we cut the song and we were going to put it out as, as our first single. And then it's all in the book. Something in the music business messed that up pretty bad. So it was never really heard. We toured and we, and there is a video of us doing it in Germany on a TV show. And it's pretty cool. I mean, Ours was a little bit more sort of, it was slower and a little druggy. It was kind of like Take a Walk on the Wild Side by Lou Reed, you know, and um, about, that's the end of that story. And then I moved to California and started pursuing my career. And, in, and right around that time, there was an A&R meeting for a private dancer, meaning there was a boardroom where all these A&R people got together and they listened to hundreds of songs. And Tina was there and the manager was there. 
Um, I wasn't there because I didn't know Tina at the time, but the urban legend is that when she heard better be good to me, she literally jumped out of her seat and started walking around the room singing it and pointing to like the A&R people, you know, so yeah. it really resonated with her. And um, that was sort of the beginning of our, our sort of musical career and friendship together. That was... Um, that was one of the first hits I wrote, uh, but it wasn't like the first song that I wrote for Tina, which I started to do after that because of the success of that song. We won a Grammy for it. She won a Grammy for Record of the Year. And um, she definitely does it more upbeat. It's definitely faster and more stomping, you know? Like, not, I'm not saying that we were doing this, but the analogy would be if we were doing like sort of druggy, sort of smoking pot and opium, she was doing something like speed, you know? Not, I'm not saying that we were doing drugs. I'm just saying the analogy of the tempos and the different vibe, you know? Exactly right. Yeah, it's fun though to listen to the two different versions. It's really, a kick when I when I sit down and, and I'll like sort of A B C D different versions of the same song. I mean, it really does point to the fact that a good song is a good song, and there's a common denominator behind that, and that's the songwriter or writers, you know. Bob Dylan is one of my all-time favorites, but every cover pretty much that's ever been done of his songs, I mean, they're just brilliant because there's such a great blueprint to work from. Exactly. And that's a, that's a good word to use, Stacey, blueprint, because the blueprint is the core of the song. So no matter how many times the production attempts to change it, it's the song. They're still working from the song, you know. And uh, uh, by the way, uh, in addition to my, uh, my book, and the Kindle version, there's an audio version. And on the audio version, there are original demos that I found that I've never played, I've never posted them, I've never released them. And I put them on the audiobook, little snippets of it. So you can actually hear demos of Love's a Battlefield and The Best and The Warrior and Love Touch. And you can really hear that there, all the stuff was there, you know? That's the fun part. I listen to it, if I have to remind myself, yeah, even those little hooks that they ended up playing or things that they did. And most especially with Tina. Tina, out of all the people I worked with, Tina would honor the demo the most. And she would literally cut things that you thought like, well, she'll never, you know, that we were just messing around with that. And she'll cut it that way because she respects that. Um, well, you mentioned your writing partner, Mike Chapman, who is been was your constant throughout and start you got you started. So I'm curious to know. Um, you know, he gave you that opportunity to become a full-time songwriter. And what was that initial feeling of switching gears from musician to songwriter? Although you still played a lot of music, of course, but then your your focus changed. You know, it was scary. It was sort of, I think I wrote about this in the book. Like I had, I'd, and I've gone through this several times in my career, by the way, where I've had sort of the cushion of being sort of tied to someone. So when I was with Spider, I had a record deal and I thought, I'm actually giving up being in a band that has a record deal to do what? Like I was writing for Spider before, now who am I gonna write for? Is anybody gonna wanna do my songs? I mean, I hadn't really gotten started in that, in, in that way. And so it was sort of a leap of faith that um, I just felt like, I'm going to just take that shot in the dark, you know, but there's definitely that fear of the unknown. And um, I had a conversation with Mike and I, and I thought that he was going to be angry because they put money into the band and we'd done two records. And he actually was very encouraging. He said, you know, 
I think you have the soul of a songwriter and being a great musician is important, but being being a great songwriter that can not only write a great song, but can write it over and over again, that has a value that is kind of higher up on the chain link, if you will, or the ladder, you know? So um, I think you should move. And he said, and if you move, I tell you what, I'm going to sign you to a new publishing deal and I'm going to put you together with other writers. We're going to write all the time. If I'm doing a record with someone and they have not come up with their own singles and they really need one, I'm going to ask you to give me something. You know, of course, it's going to have to be great. You'll have that as well, that, you know, that sort of connection. And he made good on his word in, in every sense. All, all of those three things that he promised he did. I just had to, I just had to sort of hold my breath and take a, a leap of faith and believe in myself. And that's something I talk a lot about in the book too. Um, and it was wonderful to have him encourage me because, you know, the book is dedicated really to anyone who ever had a dream and was told no. And um, if the, you read the book, you'll see that at my young age, I was fostered in one way with uh, music when when it came to playing classical music, but when I wanted to go in the direction of rock music, you know, my mother, like a lot of parents, I guess they worry, you're not this, you're this, you can, you're gonna be a classical pianist. You can't be in a band. Those are just degenerates. What are you talking about? And then okay. my father was like, you need to fall back on this. And, you know, I, you know, you just have to have a lot of faith in yourself and not listen to the naysayers. That's my biggest lesson one of the takeaways from the book, you know. The book is very inspirational. And I think aside from being just fun, interesting stories, it really gives people something to think about, particularly those who are in the arts or want to go in and do something in the arts. Um, now, MTV is right on the cover of your book, which really gives people an idea of what they're getting into. And, and when MTV debuted in 1981, it really was a major turning point in music, fashion, Everything. I mean, it just, it, I don't think they realized what they had because I had read a book about from the VJs, you know, in their own words. And it was really sure. such as came up from almost nothing to become this huge monolithic kind of um, presence in our lives. And of course, brought musicians some that maybe their careers were kind of faltering into the spotlight and gave them a mm -hmm. second life as well, like Tina Turner was one perhaps. But why do you think so many bands and musicians who were known for writing their own material in the 70s turned to outside songwriters like yourself in the 80s? Do you think MTV had something to do with that? Uh, I think that, you know, it's kind of like follow the leader. Once something gets established and people start to get comfortable with something, it becomes more of a normal thing, you know, um, and I think it was the labels that were pressuring the bands to come up with better songs. Um, a lot of times in the 70s, you had these great acts and they had great album tracks and they were more focused on the marketing aspect of a single that if the single was something that everybody loved, they were more uh, likely to go out and buy a band. I mean, obviously bands that were established like Led Zeppelin, that was a completely different thing. And those were true fans that embrace their whole body of work, but it was becoming, there were more and more bands. So how do you get the attention? Well, you have to have great songs. And the more of those that you have on the record, the more reason someone's going to go buy a record from maybe someone that has two or three songs they've been singing along all summer to than one that has maybe one single, you know, so it became more the norm 
uh, and the records started selling huge amounts that they'd never seen before. And they called them monster records because they would sell like 8 million copies or something or 12 million copies. And um, so bands that, and, and there's also a second part to that question, which is that, you know, after bands have been together for a while and they're out on the road, they really don't have enough time to write or to sort of do the things they did before the first record, you know, as they were struggling and trying to make it, they had the luxury of just writing and then taking their time. And then if that record did really well, they would have to go right in the studio again and they didn't have the luxury of time or whatever. Well, okay, so now you figured some of those bands are seven records down the road and they're running out of a little bit of steam or whatever, and they need a little bit of, it's like anything in life, you know, if you do it long enough, you need something else to sort of snap you out of that trance of what it is you do. So there was this group of writers, we were kind of like the elite writers in LA is what they referred to us as. And um, we all ran into each other. We were all sort of, we were either writing together or we were friends or we were vying at the same time to get the songs on the same record. So it was competitive. And um, some of the bands, you know, they, they all kind of worked with the same people. You know, there was me, there was Desmond Child, there was uh, Billy Steinberg and Tom Kelly. Um, those were some of the go-to people that I can think of at the time. There were more, but um, I was definitely the only rock chick. And I think that's why I connected so much with Tina. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a fantastic collaboration. But I want to get to another rock chick right now, Pat Benatar. You had mentioned Love is a Battlefield earlier, which is the song that I remember most of your, yours and hers together. Um, but there was also Invincible. So was that written with the movie The Legend of Billie Jean in mind? Or was that did that come about later? No, that was in mind. Actually, they sent me a script and I read it. And um, it was kind of like there were a lot of B-level movies in the 80s. You know, there was like that. There was Weird Science. There were, you know, they weren't the big movies. They were like sort of, they, and now when I look back, they were sort of the culture movies of the 80s. So. And The Legend of Billie Jean was really ahead of its time. It was a Me Too movement happening before the one that we've had recently. So. They, they sent me the script and they asked me, we didn't have a, a, an artist in mind at the, at the time, I was just going to write a great song. So I wrote Invincible. I was in England at the time and I was hanging out with a friend of mine, Simon Kleine, who was a songwriter artist in London. And he had a group, I think it was a Kleine Fisher. And they had like a hit or something, but he hadn't really gotten into songwriting. And I said, why don't you write this song with me? And I was thinking of Pat Benatar because I was thinking of a, an empowered, strong rock singer, you know. So I didn't know she was going to do it, but that's who I wrote it for. Hmm. I wrote it with Simon. We wrote it in, in, in one very long day and we demoed it. And when we got back to the States, I played it to Mike and I said, Mike, what do you think about Pat doing this? And what do you think about the idea of you producing it? And he loved it. And so we sent it to her and she loved it and said she was gonna cut it. Um, but I said to them with a the caveat that I really wanted Mike to produce it, which was kind of a big deal because she was getting Neil Giraldo to produce all her tracks, you know? Right, and that's um, her husband really, for those who don't know. Yeah, and guitarist. So yes. it's all tied in and I, I just, right. I had a vision that I really did not want this being changed at all. And 
um, you know, I felt like with Love is a Battlefield that it had been changed quite a bit production wise, not song wise. Um, so I said, you can only have it, which was kind of ballsy, but they agreed to it, which was amazing. And it came out fantastic. It's really, you know, it's really one of my favorite songs that I personally, that I like, that I've written. Um, because it's everything quintessentially Holly Knight. You know, it's a song fighting for, for some cause. And it's a rock song and it's got sort of an unusual melody with big stretches in it. Um, it's one of those melodies where if you changed any of the notes even slightly, it would sound completely different. It was very definitive about the notes. I don't know how much you know the song, but yeah, I just was listening to it this morning, as a matter of fact. Yeah, Yeah, I'd forgotten. I, of course, heard it all the time in the 80s and revisiting it. It just all comes back, I think, because um, it is a song that really burrows into your psyche, even if you haven't heard it for years, then you remember and you're just singing along with the words and you remember them. When the uh, the war broke out in Iraq and everything, there was a resurgence actually of the song. They were playing it so much because of the idea of stand up and face the enemy kind of vibe. That's fantastic. And your songs have been associated with other things, but I, I want to talk about when Tina passed, sadly, Tina Turner passed away earlier this year, and she did write the foreword to your book, which is fantastic. But, you know, every TV report that I watched, every article I read, all the online posts were simply the best. So um, imagine that. It's on the cover of every newspaper. Yeah, I mean, that must have been really heartwarming for you. But I'd like to know what your thoughts and feelings were at the time when to have your song so intricately entwined with her. It's sort of bittersweet. It's 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 fantastic, and it, even before she passed, that song has been used on so many different uh, venues, and 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 whether it's TV or movie or Biden's victory speech, um, or you know, it was in the Super Bowl, in a, in a commercial this year. Um, it's just become like one of those phrases, like, you know, when Cameron Crowe wrote, show me the money, you know, or it's, just, it's, it's become part of, of culture. And that is very, very touching. And it, and it makes me smile. And it's probably the most covered song I've written too. It was also a bit, um, it was a bit strange that no one ever mentions the songwriters, you know, I mean, I should be used to this by now because I've been doing it for 40 years, but, but particularly with this song, I was, I was uh, well, I was sort of gutted in the first place that she passed away and, and she, she'd not been well for a long time. And it's not like I had the kind of relationship where I went and saw her all the time. It was, it was like a long distance bond that we came together most of the time, not all, some, sometimes we came together even when I wasn't writing a song for her, but mostly that was our relationship. So for no one to ever mention the songwriter. And I mean, I've written nine songs for her, so it, it was annoying. And, and what was interesting was my phone was blowing up when it came to Australia. She's so huge in Australia and uh, the best became, it's almost like their national anthem because they use it for the uh, Australian rugby team. Everybody knows that song. And so, you know, they, they, the news, the morning news and, and people like that were calling me up just to say, you know, I'm so sorry. And is there anything you want to say? Because, you know, you've written her quite a lot of her songs, biggest songs. And that was kind of heartwarming. And I thought it was it's just strange that no one in, in the States 
call me or there was never a mention of the the writer and not just me any of the other writers and then you know some of them got it wrong like the new york times obituary said that that they inferred that mark knopfler wrote better be good to me and then rolling stones on their sort of obituary they printed that tina got together and rewrote the best with me which wasn't true i mean they mentioned me but they didn't mention mike chapman and she didn't write anything on the song. She just asked me to write her a bridge, which in that way, I give her credit. She made the song, you know, mean more. But basically, it's just, that's just the, uh, I guess that's the path of the songwriter. We always sort of get, I don't want to sound like a whiny bitch. You know? No, you're not. No, all writers have been disrespected throughout time, I think, or not remembered. I mean, look how many quotes on the internet are misattributed or we've got the screenwriters uh strike right now they're being paid paltry you know percentages of pennies and without scripts we wouldn't have all these shows and movies that we love so it's a common thing but i'm hoping that um with the this strike and books like from people like you that will bring more awareness to the writer and where these things come from it's not just well, reading your book don't though. even have a union huh oh you don't no, so we can't even go on strike. So wow, I had no idea. Strike? No, even hmm. musicians have union, like a uh, union. If you petition to come to the studio, you have to pay them a basic scale rate. You can't just have them come in and say, oh, well, you know, whatever. If yeah. the records hit, then you'll get paid, which is basically what happens with songwriters. Songwriters don't get paid. There's no union. You only get paid if the records are hit. And now with streaming, which contrary to some people think, oh, Spotify is paying for, you know, stunning amounts of money. Someone said that to me recently. It's like, you should do your fact checking. And I'm not really, I'm not complaining about it for me. I'm actually saying it for people that are starting out now that are songwriters. I mean, what have they got to look forward to? They don't get the credit anymore. At least when in my time you had to buy a record, your name was on the record. If you go to iTunes now, you know, and if you go to streaming, unless you really go out of your way to see who wrote something, you can Google it, sure. But um, I, I just, I really would love, if I could be part of something to change up for the future of songwriters, that, that would be very meaningful for me. No, that's an excellent point. Yeah, I didn't even think about that. I do remember getting LPs, vinyl, um, back in the day and seeing who the songwriter was right there on the on the physical product but with a you know mp3 <laughs> you don't get the songwriter's name so that's a really good point now um what was that like creating the audiobook i imagine you worked in a studio with someone and you you read it yourself correct mm -hmm. yes i narrated it um, i think people prefer to hear if it's a memoir they prefer to hear the writer i mean if you're gonna if it's gonna be a fictional one it's it's great when they hire an actor but um, I, they asked me if I would do it. And I said, yeah, I'd, I'll give it a shot. I didn't, I mean, I'd never done it before and usually hate the way my voice sounds. So I thought, well, I can do this. I can, this is me just talking like in a room. I mean, that that's one of the things about both the hardcover and this is that I really wanted to put the reader or listener in the room with me. And um, that's why I get so descriptive uh, about some of the passages um, which I learned from my favorite writers anyway. I try to take a literary approach and not be just doing it like a, you know, a Wikipedia version of a memoir, you know. And so when it came to the book, uh, they put me in this gorgeous studio in Santa Monica. I have my own studio. I thought, oh, I'll just do my own studio. But 
I'm so glad I went in this other studio because it was it was really cool. And then they sent a director. They had a list of directors. They sent one from the East Coast that they really liked, and he came out and he had read the book, so he and he loved it. So he was excited to be directing this. And I read it in I think it was three and a half days. It was like what you do is you go and you read and they correct as you go like the director's good for saying you know you said the wrong word or it's not what how you, it says it in the book or let's try that again because you're smacking your lips which i'm probably doing now but now that's why i'm sitting here drinking this gigantic large thing of water probably looks ridiculous it's like a gallon sized thing of water. i know yeah well it's an audio podcast but for those who can't see this jug of water is right. like a, a barrel that you would send down niagara falls <laughs> Um, you know, I was going to say on the audiobook too. I didn't know this, but you can actually. I found out that you can, or you could download the PDFs with all the photos too. Oh, fantastic! Just like in the hardcover book. I love Just, it. I'm going to do that too for are sure. Really catching on a lot more than they used to because people are multitasking, and it's a fun way to spas, uh, spend the time when you're sitting in traffic or doing something. I love audiobooks. Yeah, same here. Well, I have everything. I've got audio hardcover paperback kindle it's just i'm a book addict we'll just put too. it that way don't you look like just turning the pages and looks when you're done if, if it's a hardcover i have some respect i'll take the you know the dust cover off mm -hmm. until i'm finished reading and, and but i love <laughs> you remember paperbacks you get them you just like purposely like dog ear the the oh the yeah covers, and then you would start mm -hmm. highlighting things and it just it looked lived in by the time you were done with it yeah, yeah, books are an incredible uh, portable magic, as I, I believe it was Stephen King who said that, but I could be wrong. I may not know the writer of that quote, so <laughs> someone will have to look it up. So, uh, well, I kind of want to segue into your friendship with Cassandra Peterson, who uh, most people know as Elvira, Mistress of the Dark. She was your friend, and you also collaborated on a song with her and her writing partner, John Paragon. So um, can you talk a little bit about that and how that came about? You know, well, I mentioned this in the book, I you know, really started doing a lot of producing, but I met a lot of resistance just in the concept of it. You know, people at record labels saying, oh, well, we'll get this person. And it always was like a guy, you know, they didn't like the idea of a woman being in control in the studio. And, you know, Cassandra said, I said, if, if, if I write this for you, I, I'd really love to produce you. She said, yeah, sure, why not? So she was one of the first people that gave me my break in that way. And um, and John, who, you know, he's passed away now, he was a really great writer of very sort of comedic, funny things. Those songs are hilarious. And then we did two together. The second one we did, they were on different records. Um, when we did the second one, it became like the centerpiece for the IMAX theaters as a uh, marketing tool for 3D. Oh, so wow. there's this video out there. It's a really, it's it's kind of ironic. It's a crappy copy being that it's IMAX. I'm kind of stunned, <laughs> but um, she's in it. And so like when she says the, the plates go flying through the air, they're literally like flying through the air and out into the audience with the 3D. So that was kind of a cool thing, you know. I love the story in your book about stumping Gene Simmons with horror movie trivia. Um, the first time that I interviewed him, I was on a press line for Scooby-Doo and he was spouting out his horror movie knowledge and you stumped him with Suspiria. Now that is one of my favorite horror films. 
And we were talking about the 80s and MTV and how everything kind of changed then. And that was really the golden age of slashers and horror franchises. So I'm wondering if you have any favorite films from that era. Um, are we talking about the 1980s or further Let's go back? with the 80s. Because, well, I love the 70s. Actually, the 70s yeah. is my favorite time for horror well, movies. Even the 50s. I think about it, like Nosferatu and probably the Lon Chaney movies. Was that the 60s? Uh, well, Lon Chaney, the, well, the early Universal stuff was in the 30s, and then the 60s was more like the Hammer House House of Horror with all the Dracula movies and Christopher Lee and, you know, right, and Roger Corman. Right, then the originals, like the Lon Chaney Jr., like The Mummy, The Pillow One, The Broadest Frankenstein. Right. It started with that, like going up in New York and watching Schiller Theater on Saturday morning. And, um and then, you know, going into the 80s, like The Shining is definitely, to this day, a, such a scary movie. You know, just the, the music and the way Stanley Kubrick, who was such a genius, made that movie, that was pretty scary. I wasn't, I wasn't really into some of the, the sort of, the ones like uh, Halloween, the ones that were sort of the European ones, and even the ones now that are like those East European ones are really like, um, you know, whether it's the human centipede, that is really unbelievable. It's yeah, so, that's gross. It's so disgusting, but it's just, it's horrifying. And that's what you want in our movies. But there was like Hostel, you know, those Eastern European movies just have this flavor to them that's just psychologically haunting, you know. I also, it's not a movie, but I love American Horror Story too. Most of, the, most of them, not all of them, but the ones that are good are really, have you seen any of those? Oh, yeah, I've seen them all. Um, I like what's your favorite uh, season? Well, I'd have to say Freak Show because of the kind of the David Bowie connection. And I know you yes. love David Bowie too. That's that was my favorite just, one too. I want to circle back a little bit to um, the 80s and how so many things changed for music then, not just MTV, but also drum machines were really big then. And you talk about that in your book that some drummers obviously <laughs> didn't really like them. Maybe they felt like they were being replaced, but um, nowadays we have AI, which has been used for some pretty weird things, you know, like using Kurt Cobain's voice to sing totally different songs in other genres, which I think it's, it's fun at first, but then when you really think about it, it's kind of scary and it's being used to write lyrics. So I'm kind of wondering what your thoughts are on AI in music. Yeah, I ha I'm, I I haven't heard the Kurt Cobain stuff, but I definitely want to. Um, I I think it's pretty scary. You know, you're talking about horror movies. I think I think that is going to be the downfall of the human race, personally, because it's going to start out with that. But it's like everything that we discovered that we think is progress or a good thing, and it and it can be. Like for instance, when uh, you know atomic energy was discovered by Einstein, it was a really good thing. And then someone took the same energy and turned it into the atom bomb, you know? And I think of movies like The Matrix that I think were kind of in a way sort of prophetic as far as things that are gonna come. I think there's such a huge distance between humans and machines that to have machines doing human things it's on one hand somewhat limited because they can only sort of go from what's been programmed into them and when we're creators we create something out of nothing you know but 
there is the whole thing of the digital world where it's basically two numbers. What is it? One and zero. And it's the infinite combination of them that can spew out TV and can spew out music. I mean, it's so vast. It's so infinite that, you know, they can do that with computers. And I mean, I heard somewhere that Paul McCartney's going to do something like the Beatles record. And I'm just like, shame on you. You know, I just think like John Lennon isn't here to say yay or nay. And so I don't think it's fair to him. And and I just, I mean, what's going to, you know, it'll start with that, that and it'll go on to everything else. And then we'll be just sort of vicariously living through mach the machines that we created. You know, it's like, a, it's like the modern Frankenstein story. I don't think it's a good thing, honestly. It's going to put people out of work, even on a non-creative level. And I mean, God, I was sitting at lunch the other day and this robot sort of wheeled by, I think it was delivering some food or something like that. Yeah. What's to stop that machine? Like a gun could come out of it and no one would even know, like a machine gun wouldn't even know who sent it. You know, it's just, there's so many wrongs with it. I'm really into, uh, science, astrophysics, the universe, um, and moving forward. But I think this is a step backwards because it's not human. Good points. Um, well, I'm going to wrap it up here with my usual closing question for the Rock and Roll Nightmares podcast. What is your own personal rock and roll nightmare, Holly? Be, be, lyrics being written by machines. I mean, it comes from a spiritual place and there is nothing spiritual about machines. They don't have souls. So I think the future being soulless and being run and programmed by, you know, run, programmed by humans, but run, well, who's to say we're going to program them? At some point they could just take over. Um, well, you're doing a lot of book signings now to support this yes. wonderful book. And I see you posting about them online. So can you tell the fans who are listening uh, how they can find out about those book signings and what the best place to sure. find and follow you online is? I have a link tree, which is Holly Knight Songwriter. And if you go to that, if people know that link tree, it has everything Holly Knight in it. Um, and I keep it up to date, but I also have a website, hollyknight.com. And of course they have social media. So my Instagram is I don't even remember all these Holly Knight Vision and Holly Knight Life on Twitter, and I have a Facebook as well. And so I'm constantly keeping that up to date. The book covers a lot. And so for those listening, yeah, we only touched on a very little bit here in the podcast. So I highly recommend that people pick it up, read it, listen to the audiobook, and follow Holly Knight online. Well, thank you, Holly. I appreciate you being here. Thank you for having me. This concludes another episode of the Rock and Roll Nightmares podcast. Remember, there's a book series too. All the books are available in paperback, ebook, and audio via Amazon or the Rock and Roll Nightmares website. That's R O C K N R O L L Nightmares.com. Our official theme song is She's Out for Blood by Fuzzbuster, founded by Lars Cabot. Thank you for listening. Well, she's by